Today on Peace Talks Radio, if mediators are specially trained to resolve conflicts between disputing parties, what would happen if we elected a bunch of them to public office? I think we'd get more done. In terms of the stalemate that we so frequently see when uh, Congress is in session or here in Texas when our state legislature is in session, uh, I think more would be worked out. I would think that if somebody could come on the scene and be a very articulate spokesperson for non-adversarial politics, including non-adversarial candidacies, that they would be, there would be a huge uh, interest group out there who would actually uh, like this idea. The idea of electing mediators to public office. We'll explore it on today's program. It's ahead on Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls. When you ask most people what phrases they associate with government, you're liable to hear hopeless gridlock, partisan bickering, and slow-moving bureaucracy. Many important issues, both locally and nationally, often get hung up in stalemate. Now, outside of government, when two parties can't agree on a course, they sometimes seek out trained mediators to help find a solution both parties can accept. Our question today on Peace Talks Radio, what would happen if we elected more mediators to public office? Would it help reduce the level of conflict in City Hall or the halls of Congress? Today on Peace Talks Radio, we'll talk with mediators who have run for public office to learn how they hope to change public service, including Texas Congressman Henry Cuellar, 2006 Texas U.S. Senate candidate Barbara Ann Rodnofsky, and former mayor of Manzanita, Oregon, Hugh McIsaac. But we'll start with a mediation expert who ran for the Democratic nomination for a seat in Congress from Missouri in 1998. He ran what he called a non-adversarial campaign, and although he didn't win, he's followed up that effort with a project called Elect Mediators to Public Office, or EMPO, which endorses mediators running for government offices across the country. Dan Dana is the founder of EMPO, as well as the Mediation Training Institute International. He's written two books on mediation and talked with Peace Talks host, Suzanne Kreider. I, uh, I founded the uh, EMPO project in 2005, about two years ago. And I, like uh, many people, I think, were rather frustrated and disappointed with the partisanship in politics. So I thought that perhaps getting more mediators in the public office would uh, help solve that problem. Are you saying that mediators are not partisan? Right. Well, the definition of mediation really is to seek consensus solutions to problems as opposed to the partisan adversarial approach that seems to be uh, prevailing in, the, in, uh, in Congress, at least. And so uh, mediators, it seems to me, have a talent that should be applied there. The tagline for your project is better government through non-adversarial resolution of differences. How would mediators make better government? Well, mediators are trained in the, in the cooperative arts, and um, attorneys are trained in the adversarial arts. In elective politics, at least, uh, there seems to be a preponderance of uh, legally trained people. Many mediators are, of course, attorneys, but they've had some additional exposure to uh, non-adversarial problem solving. So it just seemed to me that uh, mediators at, at any level of uh, public service, whether it's uh, from dog catcher to president, uh, would do a better job of uh, resolving the differences that inherently confront their, uh, their work. Talk about the cooperative arts. What does that mean? Mediators are trained to uh, to seek a consensus, 
and help parties that, with divergent interests reach some common ground. And uh, so that seems to me seems to me to be the way that uh, that public servants should approach their jobs. But is it possible that seeking consensus would slow down the political process even more? Well, it could take more time. I mean, it is true that uh, consensus seeking is a slower process than just uh, sort of dictating a solution. So consensus seeking, consensus finding does uh, take a bit more time. But frankly, I'm not sure that uh, it would be any more time consuming than the uh, endless gridlock that we find in in many uh, government functions. What are you more concerned about? Are you concerned about the gridlock or the kinds of results that we get from adversarial kinds of processes in government? Well, both, actually. Uh, That's a good point. Uh, The gridlock results, I think, from the uh, non-compromising positions that opposing political parties and political uh, players tend to take uh, with the assumption that their job is to win at all costs. And so the cost that's that's paid by seeking to win at all costs is uh, solutions. And so we we find that solutions are delayed, if not uh, prevented, by this persistence in... uh, in opposition. And are you also concerned about how they make those decisions? When you use the word adversarial, what are the kinds of behaviors you're most concerned about? Well, just the, uh, the attitude that, um, that one is, is there to impose one's own political view or values upon uh, those who might be in a numerical minority, but who nevertheless have uh, useful ideas and useful values. So the the effort to um, impose one side upon the other uh, in a power play is uh, seems to me to result in uh, less desirable outcomes. You're a former candidate for the U.S. House from Congress, and you ran against a prosecuting attorney, Dennis Moore, in the Democratic Party, and you two actually became friends during what you called uh, the first non-adversarial campaign. How was it different from most political races? Well, uh, yeah, Dennis and I got to know each other during the campaign, and we've uh, seen each other a couple of times since, so I wouldn't call us uh, ongoing friends, but I certainly do admire him. Uh, He and I were both uh, on the Democratic side in Kansas, which, of course, means that we're in a a minority, and there was a Republican uh, incumbent in our district uh, at the time. This was in 1998. And so uh, Dennis and I had some conversations just uh, this privately between ourselves about how we wanted to approach this. And he actually kind of bought into my proposal that we be what I call co-candidates for the office. So we would actually come together to uh, public events and each of us would uh, present our ideas and why we thought each of us was perhaps the better candidate. But we inherently uh, and explicitly uh, left the audience with the view that it's really up to you. It's not us. We're not in a in a political fight with each other, but we're both just uh, presenting and perhaps the Jeffersonian ideal, presenting our um, our our uh, proposals and our our values and our our positions, and trust the uh, the electorate to make the right decision. Did you really believe that you could win? Not really. 
I, I've never had a political office of any kind. I never ran for class president in high school, so <laughs> I, don't, uh, I didn't really have any aspirations. It was really just kind of a, a, an experiment for me. Uh, I think if I had won, I think I could have done a good job in the office, but I'm, I'm not a politician. It's not really my career path, and I just wanted to test out some ideas about non-adversarial politics uh, during that campaign season. And also had no, no real funding, so you know, I had no political uh, organization to support me. So it was, uh, you might call it a bit of a hobby, but it was uh, learningful for me. And I think actually resulted, because uh, Dennis uh, beat the incumbent um, by a rather small margin, uh, we both kind of concluded that the exposure and the positive appearance that our uh, co-candidacy uh, produced during the uh, the run-up um, actually perhaps made the difference in Dennis's uh, initial election. Isn't it easier, Dan, to be non-adversarial when you don't think you're going to win? There's no pressure if you know, hey, I'm not going to win, so I can be nice to this guy. Yeah, well, I think that's true. Um, I didn't, you know, my, my political uh, or my career did not depend on getting elected. I had a real job insofar as, uh, you know, being a mediator is a real job. So uh, I think it's true that, that I didn't have a large stake in, in winning. I think, however, and there are other sectors in my life, and I, I know other mediators could say the same thing, in which we really do have a stake in the outcome and yet still trust the process of dialogue and consensus seeking to produce an outcome that is acceptable. Um, and generally the outcomes are not uh, bipolar, that is, they're not uh, polar opposites. And so I think uh, mediators can participate in a process, have voice and choice in an outcome without uh, feeling like if they don't win in a political uh, contest, then all is lost. But don't voters need to see a competition? Don't they need some way to distinguish between the two candidates? They certainly do. And competition is not conflict. So we can, you know, a, a sports contest, for example, uh, is a competition. There's there's one outcome, but then we play by the rules, and and there's a thing called sportsmanship and being good losers when that when that happens, and I think people respect that. So th- there's an inherent competitiveness in politics because there is uh, you know one winner among the candidates uh, in, in a race, um, but I think that does not require us, as a country or a society, to uh, to engage in the political contest in an adversarial way. You know, we can roll back the clock a few decades in this country, and I think we can find uh, examples of political campaigns that were conducted in a fashion that were respectful, that was respectful, and that the candidates did not uh, engage in what's called negative campaigning or just bashing the, the opponent. And that was a better time than now, in my view. Which races were those? Well, in the 50s, um, I'm almost old enough. I'm, I'm in my 60s, so I remember when Eisenhower was president. I wasn't very old and not a very astute observer, but my uh, recollection is that in the 50s, and uh, you know, prior to the uh, divisive uh, effect of the Vietnam War in the late 60s in this society, that politics uh, were not as adversarial and as polarized uh, as they are now. We're talking with Dr. Dan Dana. He's the founder of the Elect Mediators to Public Office Project. I'm curious, though, if there's something about mediators. They're too nice or 
maybe because they're not adversarial, they don't get elected. Because there's over a dozen mediators on your website who've run for office, but only a few of them have won. Can mediators really get elected? Well, that's you know that's been my concern too. Maybe mediators are just too nice. <laughs> you get a <laughs> you get a group of mediators together, and we're just nice people. <laughs> we're likable and we're agreeable, <laughs> and we're not hard fighters for the most part. So I I think there's some truth to that. It's a sad truth if that's the case that that mediators are not uh, sort of uh, characterologically disposed toward uh, you know being political successes. Let's say you're talking to a mediator who's considering running for office. Think about what you learned from your non-adversarial campaign. How would you coach them if this person really wanted to win? I think uh, staying true to the values, being better able to communicate it to a larger number of people. Obviously, it takes uh, money to run a campaign of any kind, and I did not have funding other than just my own personal funds that I was willing to devote to this effort. Um, also, of course, I had absolutely no political background or experience, so I didn't really, really bring any uh, uh, credibility to my candidacy uh, other than the fact that, you know, I'm a nice guy and I'm a mediator and I have some education, um, but I didn't have any political background that I could use to uh, to support my, my case. How do you see elected officials using mediation skills? Well, I think that just having uh, what I called a little earlier um, exploratory conversations, exploratory dialogues with those with whom we experience differences uh, is is perhaps the key to it. Once you're in office, at least in a legislative process, I think that um, having people uh, communicate with each other about uh, overlapping interests, shared interests, acknowledging those, uh, recognizing that each of us perhaps has a constituency that wants something somewhat different from the constituency of the of the other party. But recognizing that is just part of the uh, part of the reality, and then have uh, have an exploratory conversation about how to reach some reasonable compromise that suits, uh, to some degree, the needs of both constituencies. Dan, you said mediators are not hard fighters, and that always seems like a standard stump speech line for politicians. I will fight hard for you. What would be a compelling line for a mediator to use in a stump speech? Well, apparently not the ones that I used when I was a candidate. <laughs> <laughs> what did you say? It didn't work for me. Well, I was, you know, I tried to articulate my view that, uh, you know, I'm, th- these are my views, these are my policies, these are, that is, these are the values that I hold and what I've been trying to accomplish, um, and acknowledging that those differ perhaps somewhat from, uh, from what my co-candidate uh, advocated. Um, and just uh, leave it up to the voters to make that decision. So I think that's a good point. We've kind of developed a, a political culture in a society in which uh, it's expected that, that uh, candidates fight um, and, and that the opponent in that fight is uh, the, the other party or other candidates, depending on whether or not you're in an election phase or in an in a, in office phase. So uh, I think that uh, perhaps someone more articulate than I would be able to make a case to the voting public that, you know, my job is not simply to fight for you at the expense of others, but to uh, make an effort, and I guess you could call it fight, but I'd rather not use the word, make an effort to uh, seek reasonable compromise so that we can all be in the, uh, you know, on the same side of the problem when we're, when we're done. I will seek responsible compromise. An excellent way to put it. I think you should run for office. (laughs) (laughs) 
Do mediators tend to align with any particular party? How long do you think it'll take to get 50% of Congress as mediators? Well, um, let's see, I'm 62. I have about another 30 or 40 years. I hope to see it in my lifetime. Uh, It it seems to me that uh, increasingly uh, the American public is just disgusted with politics. And and we know the the approval of Congress as of today or recently is about 18%. It's a historic low, I think. So people are simply disgusted with political processes. There's a, a very low regard for um, for uh, for, can- for not just candidates but uh, office holders, at least at the national level. Um, so I would think that if somebody could come on the scene and be a very articulate spokesperson for non-adversarial politics, including non-adversarial candidacies, that they would be there would be a huge uh, interest group out there, the, what some might call a silent majority, a very different silent majority from the one that Jerry Falwell labeled, um, who would actually uh, like this idea and would have, uh, would have broad support. So there could be some watershed event, one, some watershed candidate who is uh, a charismatic, articulate spokesperson for this view that would actually be a political success. We've been talking with Dr. Dan Dana, the founder of Elect Mediators to Public Office Project. Dan, thanks so much for being our guest today. Thanks for the opportunity. In a moment, a member of Congress who says he's actively using his mediation training to resolve conflicts across party lines on Capitol Hill. More Peace Talks Radio after this break. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls. You can visit us online to find out more about today's topic as well as hear all the programs in our series and learn how you can help support the program. Visit peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Today we're exploring one idea for improving conflict resolution in government, the Elect Mediators to Public Office Project. We just heard from Dan Dana, the project founder. To win endorsement by the project, a candidate has to have had some mediation training and pledged to employ principles of mediation in resolving conflicts in government. Among those endorsed by MPO and currently serving his second term in Congress is Democratic Representative Henry Cuellar from the 28th District in Texas. Here again is Suzanne Kreider. Congressman Henry Cuellar is a member of the Homeland Security, Small Business, and Agriculture Committees. He is the most degreed member of Congress, with five advanced degrees, including a law degree from the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome, Representative Cuellar. Thank you very much. 
you're a trained mediator and you have a third degree black belt. It, it seems like those would be very different kinds of mindsets. <laughs> no, actually they're not. Uh, the uh, Shotokan karate, which I got a third degree black belt, is more on the discipline. The main thing uh, I was taught by uh, my teacher was to make sure that uh, we're able to uh, talk our way out of fights. And I think that's what we're trying to do as mediators is that we're trying to uh, avoid the uh, the conflicts, avoid the fights, uh, and try to uh, understand where you know what the positions are of each party and try to develop a consensus where it becomes a win-win situation. Can you give us an example of how you've used these mediation skills in your work on Congress? Well, you know, one of the things uh, that I've looked at is, for example, amendments. Uh, my first year when I was here as a uh, House member, I had a uh, 1,000 battery average on the House floor. I had 11 out of 11 amendments that I passed. And part of the reason was that uh, usually when people look at amendments, they have an amendment, they file it, uh, and then they they hope that they can you know get the votes to to get it passed. Uh, I used a different style. I mean, I went to both the Democrats and the Republicans and said, "Hey, I have this amendment. Uh, you know, do you all have a problem with this amendment? This is what my my legislative intent is on this amendment." Uh, and if I saw that there was an issue with that, uh, that amendment, I would sit down and uh, try to work out some language uh, that would work for both uh, both sides. And then from there, uh, you know, I would go ahead and, and, and finally introduce the amendment on that. So uh, I used my skills to uh, to make sure that it was a win-win situation with everybody. And I had the green light. And, and like I said, my first session, I got 11 out of 11 amendments passed from the House floor. Talk about how you did that. You're sitting with a Republican. They've got a completely different position. What do you do? Well, actually, you know, the the first thing is, and, and I even saw that with some of my colleagues that have been there longer, and this is when I was a first term. Uh, I first thing I said was, hey, let's, uh, and I remember one particular amendment. I said, hey, why don't we go ahead, uh, come with me and let's go talk to, uh, you know, to the uh, Republican manager on the floor. And he says, why do we have to do that? I said, well, because, well, two things. Well, one is they're, they're in the majority, so if they wanted to go against an amendment, they have more votes than the Democrats do. So let's go and sit down and talk to them. And, and, and I think even some of the Republicans were surprised that, you know, that Democrats were coming over to talk to them about amendments. I, I think what happens in our legislative body too many times is that people take the uh, confrontational approach. And I think to me, it's, it's better to sit down and, and develop a consensus, you know, make sure everybody understands what the purpose is uh, and what we're trying to accomplish. And if there is some technical changes that you need to do the language, then let's go ahead and do that. And, and, and that's how I was able to use uh, uh, my approach uh, on getting 11 out of 11 amendments passed as a freshman. But it must have taken a lot of courage because what you did is you began to change the way Congress works. When, when you went and you addressed p- opponents directly, you were changing the way everything happens. Quite honestly, if you look at my history, I've been attacked in my primaries, not in my November election. And part of it is because I believe in bipartisan uh, in bipartisan work. I believe in reaching out to other folks. And as you know, you know, when you work out a solution, you don't just work within your party. You got to work out to the reach out to the other party. Uh, sometimes people take that as as not doing the right thing for the party. 
and if you look at my history, I've been attacked, uh, not in the November election, but I've been attacked in the primaries, simply because part of the thing is that people misunderstand uh, my willingness to take a bipartisan uh, a bipartisan approach. And by taking a bipartisan approach, that means you got to reach out. You got to understand what the Republicans are looking for. You got to look uh, understand what the Democrats are looking at. But more inter- but more importantly, you know, besides the political affiliations, you got to look at, you know, what is the best thing or what's in the best interest uh, of you know of the people that we're representing. Uh, but doing the right thing, you are going to get attacked. And I was ready for uh, some of those attacks that I got. Most politicians don't like these hypothetical questions. But let's say. I don't answer hypothetical questions, but you may ask the question. (laughs) Let me me try one. Let's say 50% of the people serving in the new House of Representatives are all trained mediators. Would things change? I think that, uh, hypothetically speaking, and and, and again, I'll I'll break my rule here, but I think, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a good, it's a good question. I mean, I think if, uh, if we went in, uh, first of all, saying we might be Democrats, we might be Republicans, but people are tired of the fighting, uh, that, you know, that they see up there in Washington and not coming up with the practical solutions that I think people want to see to the real problems that they have. And if they have people that are not going to talk to each other through sound bites, uh, you know, radio, TV, uh, newspaper, whatever the medium might be, but are willing to sit down and say, okay, here are our differences, uh, but our goal is to provide uh, better service to our country in this case, uh, then I think it, uh, I mean, I think it definitely, I think it would be a tool. uh, I think it would be a skill that will certainly help uh, Congress, uh, you know, congressional folks uh, uh, be able to work out their differences. Would party affiliation suddenly become a moot point? Well, uh, p- party affiliation, unfortunately, will always be a factor. Uh, but I think it's up to us to say that, uh, you know, the congressman to say, yes, you know, we do have political affiliations, but country comes before any party. Most politicians want to be reelected. Do members of Congress believe that bringing home the bacon for their constituents is what's going to get them reelected? Well, what some people might call uh, bacon, uh, some people call bread and butter. Uh, I think we all have, uh, you know, I think we need to, first of all, when we talk about earmarks, uh, I think they have to be transparent. You know, people need to know who's asking for that, what's the purpose uh, for that amendment, and if somebody cannot defend that amendment uh, on the floor, uh, uh, or even in committee, then they, you know, they should not be allowed to carry that amendment or that earmark up there. Uh, I come from a very poor uh, part of the country. Uh, you know, in, in, in some of my areas, you have some of the highest unemployment rates in the whole country. You have uh, what we call colonias. Colonias are almost third world conditions where people live in, in areas that have no water and no sewage. Uh, you know, things that we take for granted in, 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 in other parts of the country. Uh, some of these folks just don't have the basic utilities. So to, to try to bring in uh, some water or assistance and, and sewage or help them and, and bring in some uh, educational opportunities, uh, like I said, for some people they might call it pork, but for some people it's bread and butter. Here's a hypothetical question. What if you were hired by the Congress to teach a class in mediation skills? What are the top three skills you would teach? 
Well, the first thing uh, I definitely would uh, would teach is that the uh, just like when you have a mediation, you have different parties. You want to uh, maintain the integrity of the process. You know, the integrity of mediation. How you go and you make an offer, you come back, and you sit down and try to work out the differences. You know, you know, if it's a legal case, for example, in the congressional, you know, I think uh, one of the main things that you have to maintain is the integrity of the system, the legislative system. Uh, therefore, you know, we have to make sure that we get away from bitter personal attacks because then it affects the legislative system. Uh, the second thing is what I would say is uh, tomorrow's another day. You know, you don't burn your bridges. Uh, you know, some people think that this vote is the most important vote and they'll do everything and burn down the bridges and burn down everything to get to this point, you know, to get to this vote. Uh, you know, my thing is votes are important. There's different degrees of importance to votes. Uh, but the important thing to do is to realize uh, that tomorrow's another day and you don't burn those bridges because tomorrow, you know, the person that you were against might be an ally of yours. And finally, the third thing uh, I would uh, also emphasize is that there are days that can be very difficult. There are days that can be very trying. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, you get your job done and, you know, you're still a congressman. You're still a human being. You know, we all got our strengths and our weaknesses. But, the, you know, the, the important thing is it's a job and we have to do it in a professional way. And um, at the end of the day, you just realize that you're trying to do your best. You know, we're trying to do our best as human beings. Representative Cuellar, I want to thank you very much for being on our program today. Uh, Susan, I want to thank you very much. And this has to be one of the most, uh, uh, and I mean this sincerely, one of the most interesting interviews I've done. I appreciate that. Texas Congressman Henry Cuellar with Suzanne Kreider. Cuellar is a trained mediator in addition to his many other degrees and certifications. I'm Paul Ingalls. Today on Peace Talks Radio, we're asking the question, if more mediators were elected to public office, would it help government resolve conflicts any better? Next, we talk with Hugh McIsaac, a veteran mediator who won the mayoral election in the small Oregon coastal town of Manzanita in 2004. Here again is Suzanne Kreider. Welcome, Hugh. Oh, glad to be here. When you ran for mayor, you referred to the person you ran against as the other person in the race rather than calling him my opponent. What was that shift in language about? The shift in language was really, I, I saw this person, I, the decision to run really was made uh, when I realized that, uh, that, that there was a small group that really wanted to continue their sort of dominance with Manzanita and that, you know, he was kind of the candidate that they had put up. And, uh, but he also was very intelligent and a lot of good ideas. It's just that I felt that... Uh, it was sort of elitist and left a lot of people in that community out. Um, and uh, but you know, making it a, a a fight between two individuals, I thought was really unseemly, and that you know that it would be much better to uh, combine our efforts around what's best for the community and try to work together to uh, help this uh, small coastal town uh, achieve you know what's best for it and best for the citizens within it. What happened to him after you ran? Well, we, you know, I got, he and I became very good friends. Uh, we went out for coffee, and uh, I made sure that he was the first person we appointed 
uh, to the uh, city council because, you know, it's always good to have a good negative thinker, you know, uh, aboard, and he was very good at that, and he made you think about other options and things that might uh, be important to consider, and, and he did represent a very important group in the community, and so uh, ha- appointing him uh, was a very helpful. What type of mediation work did you do in your career? Well, we started out in the conciliation court, uh, which originally was uh, to uh, put marriages back together, uh, but recognizing that when 75% of them weren't, that we were doing something else that was more important. And that was helping them end uh, the relationship uh, in a sensible way. Um, And we became involved in the legislation to create the conciliation court. And I learned a lot about mediation skills through that process. Good legislation is essentially a mediation effort. So let's shift and talk about a little bit about you as being mayor. What did you do as mayor that a non-mediator wouldn't have done? Well, you know, the first is uh, Manzanita sort of defined itself from these three, two surrounding communities as being a superior place, and they didn't have much to do with these folks that lived across the river. And I recognized that, man, this is not sensible. We need to work together. We have common problems. Uh, and so I set up a breakfast meeting with Shirley Kalkoven, who was the mayor of Nehalem, who was sort of the Miss Marple of North Coast Oregon politics. And, man, I, I learned more from her than I learned from anybody else. And then uh, the mayor of Wheeler, which is a neighboring town. And we got together. And uh, so that was the first thing. And we organized um, one of the things that happened right in the at the beginning of uh, my term there was uh, the Bandeachi, uh you know, uh, event, the tsunami over in Southeast Asia happened. And it just happens off the coast of Oregon as a 780-mile uh, Cascadia subduction zone, which is capable of a 9.3 earthquake and probably, you know, uh, every 300 years it lets loose and you're going to have a 90-foot wave coming ashore that's not going to be... 80 degrees, it's going to be 46 degrees, and so you're going to have some really terrible problems if you don't, and and they're going to have them anyway, but you better mitigate and plan for it. So one of the things, we got together and developed an emergency uh, plan uh, to evacuate the community, to do some mitigation, uh, you know, planning, and, uh, you know, so that's essentially, I don't think that would have happened uh, if we hadn't worked together. So that's, uh, that's an example of it. How did those other local mayors react to your invitation to getting together? They were pleased. Uh, they were, you know, one of my great mottos comes from uh, Satchel Paige, that great ph- uh, baseball philosopher. Is None of us is smarter than all of us. And, uh, you know, they had some good ideas, and they knew the community a lot better than I did. And so as a result, of it, we were able to mobilize forces that uh, wouldn't have been available to us if we had have done this individually. How responsive were citizens to getting involved? Because it seems like a lot of people like to just sit and watch politicians do all the work. <laughs> <laughs> well, or blame them when things don't go right, you know. But uh, no, it's they were very. It's this is a it's a, an amazing. There's a lot of talent in, in Manzanita. People who retired. You had a lot of folks from Microsoft and Intel who would come there as second homeowners. And the, and the, again, the, uh, the the townies tend to treat that, treat them as you know second citizens and. They were more than happy. When we had our first town hall meeting, uh, it was amazing. I mean, it was uh, Quasimodo time. We had you know a whole bunch of folks there, and everybody got involved. And uh, so there was a lot of involvement. 
We're talking with Hugh McIsaac. He's a professional mediator and was mayor of Manzanita, Oregon from 2004 to 2006. Hugh, it seems like a lot of elected officials have big egos. That's just a stereotype. But how did you keep your ego in the background so that you could work? It sounds like you worked more as an equal with folks in the community and with these other mayors. I did a lot more listening than talking is one thing, uh, you know. And I also there was a, uh, a, a state senator who I watched uh, conduct a hearing, um, and he was so sensitive, uh, and, 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 and we had this, you know, people get very nervous when they get up in the public. It's their first event, and you treat people with uh, decency and uh, respect, and uh, they have something to say, and you better listen to it, and it's important. So listening is the first uh, prerequisite. Uh, every way of seeing something is a thousand ways of not seeing it. And so you need to really look through the, it's like looking at a diamond. You need to look through all the facets to try to understand what the essence of the issues are. So that's essentially how I did it. And don't take yourself very seriously because, you know, it's uh, no matter what position you are, that you're just one of uh, six billion folks. And uh we better get together <laughs> and do this thing right, or it's not going to go down too well. So those are sort of my uh, how I see things. Do you think it was easy to get everybody in Manzanita involved because it was a small town, a lot of retired folks? I think that's true. Uh, I think that uh, in any larger town that you need to do it neighborhood by neighborhood, you can't really do it. Uh, when I was director of Family Court Services in Los Angeles, which is 70 villages in search of a city, uh, you, you know, to try to do something, uh, you know, throughout the county was really difficult. But if we did something in Santa Monica or Pasadena and did it well, then we could uh, import it out to the other uh, district courts. So uh, I think it's, you know, it's really important to, uh, to with small groups tend to be uh, easier to manage than, and to work together and to get uh, co- collective responses from than, uh a large, you know, uh, process. So I think it's very important to break down into smaller, effective groups. Hugh, why would government be better if more mediators were elected? Well, I think uh, mediation has very helpful skills. It's more of a problem-solving process than a win-lose paradigm. And I think uh, the problem with modern politics is it's become so position-focused and, uh, you know, trying to make your opponent look bad and, uh, you know, uh, negative uh, and the wedge politics. And in the long run, I think it's, for instance, I think it's really hurt the Republican Party because, you know, you can do it so long, but then eventually people begin to realize that there's uh, hypocrisy involved in it and, it and it backfires and nothing gets solved. And what happens is the whole political process becomes contaminated with the contempt of the public and you know there things aren't getting done so i think that having mediation skills is enormously helpful and uh and and the, the I, I think that the very successful uh legislators and there are a lot i have a lot of respect for persons that are in politics they give up a lot and they take a lot of uh, i hate to use the word crap from folks because uh you know, it's it's not an easy job, and uh, and we need to respect them and uh, honor them in ways that we, the public doesn't. Uh, but I think the mediation skills are extraordinarily helpful, and uh, it's mainly listening, learning to find out what the problems are, helping them out that way. But don't voters elect someone so that they will take a position, so they will bring home the bacon for their district or their state? 
I think they do, but I think they also, uh, a good politician respects and listens to what those issues are and frames them in ways that are going to be helpful. When you frame things that in ways that divide people and, uh, you know, you may win in the short term, but uh, in the long term, you don't win. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking of the really effective legislatures that I met in the California legislator, the legislature. They, um, they were smart they were uh and i think term limits is the worst thing that ever happened uh you know i think california's uh problem with uh you know the deregulation of uh electricity uh and all that craziness wouldn't have happened if you had a, a, a experienced legislature the, the phil eisenbergs and those folks that had been around for a while that could really have helped so I, I, I think the problem is that you really good people are hesitant to run because it's such a dirty business and takes so much money. And, uh, you know, television has really uh, distorted, uh, you know, the process in such bad ways because it's all image and flash and, and not, not much substance. But it sounds like you're talking about social change. You're talking about changing the mentality because it almost seems like politics comes from a tribal mentality of this is our land, these are our resources. We can't share them in order to stay alive. Well, but, you know, there's a more... Um, Martin Van Crevel, at the end of the nation-state, kind of talks about the need to look at things more globally. I think the Internet... Uh, we're going through a process of a change now that we don't barely understand. And I think that, uh, you know, there's going to be a, a tectonic shift in the way we do things. Uh, if we don't, uh, I think you're going to end up with a greatly decimated, uh, you know, planet. Uh, so I think there's a consciousness that's coming aboard. And I think that the really effective politicians, and it doesn't have to be a politician. It could be someone like Al Gore or somebody who kind of takes these uh, huge national concerns, international concerns, and frames them in ways that people can understand, uh, then, you know, the politics will follow for that, you know. Uh, so you've got to frame the problem correctly and get people to understand and buy into what some potential solutions might be before you, you know. Uh, and, and that's the more important step. You know, winning elections is not as important as really helping you find the solutions. Let's say you were creating a campaign to elect mm -hmm. mediators. What would the slogan be for that? Uh, constructive change, uh, thoughtful, you know, change. Uh, let's get together and solve our problems. Uh, you know, mutual planning, uh, those kinds of things. So that, you know, it's not focused on a position. Because once you get identified with a position, uh, then it's a problem. But, uh, you know, you start listening. Uh, you know, once people feel that they're they're government is listening to them and hearing them out uh, and then acting on those concerns, then I think uh, that's, it's, uh, it, it's the process that's more important than the end result. You know, the end result is important. I'm not saying it isn't, but you need to find the, the, a way that everybody can buy in on and not get locked into a single position or, or course of action. That's Hugh McIsaac, a career mediator and former mayor of Manzanita, Oregon. Next on Peace Talks Radio, a mediator and lawyer who didn't win her election, but who's liable to try again to bring her mediation skills into government after this break.
I'm Paul Ingalls. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. One place where conflict seems a constant is in government. Whether nationally or locally, gridlock and partisan bickering seem to be the rule. There are those who think if we elected more people trained as mediators, then we'd have more people in government practicing what they call the cooperative arts, as opposed to the adversarial arts. And they say resolving more conflicts and getting things done. Barbara Ann Rodnofsky was the Democratic candidate for the U.S. Senate in Texas in 2006. She's had training as both a lawyer and a mediator. She lost that election to Republican incumbent Kay Bailey Hutchinson. She talked with our host, Suzanne Kreider. Welcome, Barbara Ann. Hello. You practiced law for 27 years, but you've also said that mediation training really helped you become a good trial lawyer. And that's kind of confusing because aren't trial lawyers trained to be adversarial? Well, sometimes too much. Mediation training teaches you how to listen and how to really go beyond what people are saying to really listen to find out what their true interests are. You ran against a really well-liked incumbent who did not have to debate you. What did you do about that? Well, we knew we had to get her to debate, and so we tried to put ourselves in her shoes, think like she thinks, look past the positions she was taking to find out what her true interests were. And having assessed it, we decided the way to prod her into debate was to just state what her interests were, even though no one else was saying it. And it worked. How did you know what her interests were? We did a lot of research. We listened. And then I began to think like her. And I sat down and realized she'd never debated much, if at all. Uh, Yet she wanted to be vice president of the United States, and she had a fear of debating. So we said... She's afraid to debate, but must do it in order to show her contemporaries that she wants to be and is capable of being vice president. And did that work? Yes, it was great. It worked uh, It worked beautifully, just as we'd planned. We prodded her. We used a bit of humor to do it. And between the media and us, she ultimately uh, agreed to debate. It was funny because we asked for a series of debates, and she said we could do one and just play it over and over again. What was your response to that? I said it was rather like uh, taping seven baseball games and saying it was a World Series. Now, at the time, some in the press accused you of taunting her, and you were quoted as accusing her of stage fright. How did you decide what was an appropriate response to the debate issue while still remaining civil? Well, I think civility is very important, and uh, I think there's a line between gentle humor and uh, meanness. And uh, I think just as trial lawyers use gentle humor, uh, and sometimes uh, it can be a bit biting, but it doesn't cross over the line for meanness. And and again, mediator skills uh, teach you what you can and can't do. Like what? Well, in a mediation, for example, uh, sarcasm never works. Never. It always is misinterpreted. Humor is distinct from uh, sarcasm. There was no intent, for example, to uh, take someone's personal personal conduct and use it. But in terms of debate skills and appearance on a stage, that's something that politicians are known for. I did see a video, a portion of that debate, and you came across as really strong. Is there a difference between being competitive and being strong? Yes, I, I think very much so. And the nice thing about being with um, a woman uh, one-on-one on on a debate is that uh, 
the contrast and your ability to to work uh, uses your instincts. You can be strong uh, without being accused of being uh, some of those bad words they sometimes call women. <laughs> your website has your goal on it, which is stated as to reduce partisanship, polarization, and unnecessarily adversarial practices. Are there necessarial adversarial practices? Yes, there are absolutely adversarial practices that are necessary. The first is to point out factually when people are wrong. And direct, clear responses work the best. We've learned that. It tested well in politics, and of course, it's what works in a mediation, especially when the message is delivered with strength but with politeness. But is that adversarial? Oh, I think so. Uh, Conflict, the notion of conflict uh, is good and bad. And there are good conflicts where one says uh, yes, the other says no. Those folks are adversarial, but they don't use trial by combat. But how do you stay calm during all of that? That's a great question. Because, for example, in a debate uh, on TV across the state, it was quite exciting. Uh, The way to stay calm is to just use the techniques uh, of breathing techniques, for example, and uh, visualization and keeping your goal in mind. And let's say, for example, a candidate hears their opponent lying. What do you do? How do you not scream out at them or call them a name? Well, when you when you hear the lie, what you need to do is keep your interests in mind. And when you compare what your interests are versus your opponents, uh, the key, the real key, is to use the three the three aspects of rhetoric that every good speaker knows, ethos, pathos, and logos, ethical appeal, sympathy, and logical appeal. And keep in mind the facts, the logical appeal are only the smallest part of that. What's the biggest part? Uh, My opinion is uh, ethos, ethical appeal, particularly in politics. If you were coaching a candidate, how would you explain to use ethos? One of the best ways to use ethos is to identify with a uh, beloved figure. Uh, Use a quote in certain circumstances from Lincoln. Use a quote from Martin Luther King. Uh, Depending on the state you're in, depending on your audience, it'll depend who you want to identify with. And you can start a speech that way. You can start with a quote, for example, from Lincoln's second inaugural, the one that says, with malice towards none, with charity towards all, with goodness in the right as God has given us to see that right. That quote, just brilliant quote for mediators. You not only have mediation training, you've taught students how to resolve conflict, and it's in a peer mediation program. And there's an article on your website that says you really stress ground rules. For example, no put-downs. Could you teach that ground rule to some of our presidential candidates? Oh, boy. Yes, and it works. It works with junior high students. It works with unruly high school kids. And it would work in the... um, Bullying battlefield we know is either Congress or the presidential battlegrounds. But why do candidates think that put-downs work? It's rather a mystery to me. A direct attack on someone doesn't help your ethical appeal, doesn't help sympathy. As a matter of fact, it gives that pathos, that sympathy to the other side. Uh, Sometimes they may think it has some logic, but I don't see it. Barbara Ann, are there certain personality characteristics that all mediators share? Not necessarily. I I get that question from others. Uh, Some are 
maternal and peace tent in the battlefield. Others are much more aggressive. Uh, I think listening skills uh, is perhaps the hallmark of a good mediator. And could anybody learn that? Any politician? Yes. That's the great thing. It's not just elementary and junior high students that are receptive and become brilliant mediators. And they do, by the way. Politicians can learn to listen as well. It, it helps them win. It helps them communicate. We spoke with Dr. Dan Dana, who started the Elect Mediators to Public Office project, and he said mediators aren't fighters. Would you agree or disagree? Well, I'm a mediator, and I'm a big fighter. I was a trial lawyer for 27 years, and I'm a woman, for goodness sake. So I think a woman getting ahead in uh, the legal world or other worlds, or has kids, I have three children of my own, you're a fighter. I think a lot of people are fighters, but I think it nonetheless doesn't stop you from being a good listener uh, and learning the skills you need to bring people together. But do you think that getting more mediators into public office would change the political process, would reduce some of the adversarial practices or fighting? I do. I I firmly believe that. Uh, What we need are a group of people who know how to fight for people, who know how to represent people, and also who know how to bring people together. Those are not mutually exclusive skills. How would government change if more mediators were elected to public office? I think we'd get more done. In terms of the stalemate that we so frequently see when uh, Congress is in session or here in Texas when our state legislature is in session, uh, I think more would be worked out. And you'd still have the democratic process where votes count. But there would be less of the fighting that is completely counterproductive and more of the actual work gets done. It's really very straightforward. Barbara, how could more mediators be recruited to run for public office? One great way uh, would be to just ask them. It's a rather direct way, but there's many mediator societies around the country and promote the notion that uh, mediators aren't some weak Uh, poor performing folks, but are rather very highly skilled folks who are teaching right now in the schools. And I should add that the next crop of great politicians, great statesmen, great diplomats will come from the student mediators and folks that I see out there in the junior high schools. How do you know that? I see them in action. I see what they're able to do in conflicts in the schools. And everyone knows if they've got a kid in school, how a small thing like bullying may seem to an adult, but it's the worst thing in the world to a kid. It stops them from learning. Yeah, what, so what are you excited about? Well, the peer mediation program actually has the children resolve their own conflicts. They have a system whereby the students uh, ask for mediation if they have a conflict with another student. If it does not involve weapons or guns, then they go there instead of to the principal's office. And you'd be delighted to see how fast these kids understand setting the ground rules, providing a protected environment, and then resolving the conflict. What's a story you could tell about a particular student who's really come a long way with mediation skills? Well, we frequently have students who are bilingual. And some of those students, because they're different, are discriminated against or made fun of in the schools. As mediators, those students are considered particularly attractive because they have the skills and the ability to take, for example, uh, Spanish-speaking students and giving them a Spanish-speaking mediation. They are considered leaders. And 
when you give a student or any person that kind of trust and responsibility, they grow into the position, and they understand they're not the judge. They understand their purpose is to provide a safe environment for others. They gain respect. They have respect for themselves, and I can't tell you how often I have kids who were my junior high students years ago go on to college, maybe the first kid in their first kid in their family to go on to college. They believe they can do anything, and they're right. In terms of getting more mediators elected to public office, wouldn't you have to get that idea to the state party leaders? Well, I think every, every state's different. In Texas, the Democratic Party uh, has been in a growing phase. And the good news is, for me to run, there wasn't anybody I had to get the idea to a state party office. I just researched it, figured out how to do it, and did it, and won a contested primary, and then a uh, contested runoff. Barbara Ann, we want to thank you for being our guest today. Thank you very much. Thank you. You can find links to the website for Barbara Ann Rodnofsky, as well as web links to our other guests, Representative Henry Cuellar, Dan Dana, and Hugh McIsaac, by visiting our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear this program again, as well as all the programs in our series. You can also order CDs, sign up for a podcast and newsletter, and do your part by making a financial contribution to our nonprofit organization that produces Peace Talks Radio. In addition to support from listeners like you, we receive support from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, the Peace Tales CD Project, and KUNM Radio. Our theme was composed and performed by Allie Adelman. For Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening.